Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Hi, Charlene, welcome. Welcome to the Boney Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So today's all, all Boney day. Today you were on a clubhouse conversation earlier today. And I, I, I listened in on a little bit, and the part that I listened in on and that I found really interesting and I can relate is the part you talked about imposter syndrome. Uh, you know, and you're so accomplished. So I, 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 I find it interesting and, and, and kind of happy that somebody as accomplished as you still go, you know, still goes through the, you know, that's imposter syndrome. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's something that we should really be talking more about. And I quite honestly feel like in the decade I've been in the State Department, when I first started out, I had so much of it. Um, and I think, I, you know, I think I still have a, a lot more, a lot less now, but it's taken a lot of intentional thinking through, like, why do I feel like I don't belong um, in, in this career? But I think it goes back to like even when I was younger, um, you know, my my family, you know, it's kind of typical immigrant uh, family story for the U.S., right? Like they came here um, over 40 years ago. Honestly, have lived here longer than they've lived in Bangladesh. And but you know that that kind of immigrant family upbringing of like you just gotta grind and keep working, and but you don't always feel like you belong. And so you know, I got I got I went to pretty good schools, but I was the first, um, you know, my brother and I were the first in our entire very massive Bangladeshi family to to go to to college in the U.S. Um, and to move on to, to white-collar careers. But so every step of the way, it really felt like, you know, were we meant to be here? Um, and okay, yes, I've worked really hard, but, you know, it, I'd never learned that, like, you know, you, keep, you just learned how to grind. And so you read, I don't think everyone, anyone ever taught me, hey, you're you're doing pretty well now. Like take a second and actually say kudos. Like you've done some really great things. That doesn't mean like, oh, I'm the, I'm, you know, the the greatest of all things, but it's a a recognition that like I've accomplished some things. Um, And maybe part of it is just the way I was raised. My parents are never the kind of people to be like, to show off and be like, oh, look, I'm so proud of my children. Um, And I don't think that's a negative or a positive thing. I just think it's just the recognition of like how I was how I was taught to be. Um, and so when I fast forward to when I joined the State Department um, over a decade ago um, in 2011, early 2011, um, I quite honestly didn't even know that I was becoming a diplomat. I, the joke was that I was doing my swearing in ceremony that we all have to swear by the constitution. Um, and I raised my right hand and I was like, wait, whoa, this is serious. Like I am becoming like a United States diplomat you know, the first in my entire family to, to do a job like this and to serve our country. Um, and it kind of like, and it didn't really hit me, but over the years um, I've learned, um, and especially just by bonding and like, just like the clubhouse um, opportunity, which is so great that you guys do that because it, it, it share, it allows um, some of us who've been through similar experiences to share our journeys and then realize, wait, we all are really accomplished and wow, like, but we don't sit here and say, hey, good job. Like you are doing so much and you should feel proud of yourself. Um, and I think just becoming intentional about that. And for me, as I kind of, I feel like now I'm at the point of my career where I'm doing a lot more mentorship. I want the next generation to really do 
especially women of color and people of color who are, you know, are the few faces in the room that are not white, you know, we need to to take a second and be like, hey, we all are should be proud of what we've achieved and we will be doing so much more great things in our roles in different jobs. So that swearing in ceremony you talked about, uh, when you looked around, were there any other people that looked like you? No, I mean, it's like, I feel like um, the good thing is now in policy, there are more faces that look like me. But when I joined the State Department um, over a decade ago, it wasn't just that there weren't that many brown faces. Um, There weren't that many you know, female faces or brown faces or the combination of brown female faces. Um, and so you start to realize, you know, wow, like, um, and that's, I think that's how, it, you know, the exact, the imposter syndrome just kind of festers because you're like, oh, am I really supposed to be here? And then you realize over time, as you contribute great things over time that like, yeah, I'm meant to be here. And actually I like this, this, um, country, this government is lucky to have our diverse voices and our experiences. What I bring to the table is actually incredibly important to policymaking um, and to foreign policy writ large. You know, the interesting thing about um, imposter syndrome is that is it disproportionately affects high-achieving people. So it's usually people that are really doing their stuff, that are doing what they need to do, that, that suffer from that. Yeah, you know, that is so interesting. And I'm going to take that like little factoid with me now wherever I go, because (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. Um, Because I know so many other incredibly accomplished people, women, um, and they're just like constantly feeling like they're not doing enough when in actuality we are doing great things. Yeah. And one thing you talked about is, you know, this sort of like confidence that other uh, people of other uh, gender and nationalities have that uh, is important in, um, in communicating something. You talked about, you know, what we need to be doing is coming into a room and acting like we, you know, acting like we sort of, you know, we, we own it and um, that our, our presence is felt sort of like, you know, um, you know, uh, it's like, what do you, so what do you think about that? Like the whole fake it till you make it type of movement, like the whole Amy Cuddy, you know, body language type, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um I should have I should have known that there was actually a movement and a name for it because I'm just kind of <laughs> making it up as I go along. <laughs> but um and I and I talked a little about this in the clubhouse thing, which was I, I don't know what happened, but like psychologically when I became a mom a few years ago, it was like a light switch went off where I was like, wait, I'm not trying to teach my kids to be anything but boss level. So wait, why am I over here doubting myself? Um, and it caused a lot of introspection for myself. And then I realized, wow, I've been doubting myself all along. And I will say, I'm really lucky. Like my husband is like, um, also um, as a person of color, um, not Bangladeshi, but like, it's so interesting to, to see like our differences of perspectives. But he, in some respects, also has the imposter syndrome, but in other ways, he's just like, he just walks right into the room and just like commands a presence. Um, and he's like, why wouldn't you feel the same way? And I was like, well, and I start thinking to myself, I'm like, I actually don't have any real reasons. They're just like ingrained like behavior traits that I learned over the last, you know, 35 years of my life. Um, and so I do think that, uh, especially like from the clubhouse conversation, it was incredible to hear so many accomplished other Bengali women who like are boss 
um, and still like are, you know, managing their own imposter syndromes. And so I do feel like part of it is just recognizing, especially where we are as, as a country right now, um, um, considering the, the more robust conversations we have about um, what it means to be a minority in the United States, what it means to be a person of color. Um, we can't not seize this moment and have a deeper conversation about the fact that you can't just have us as tokens in what has mo- mostly been majority white spaces without recognizing our talent. Um, and I, I am thankful for the, the new administration and taking this, this very seriously um, and having a, more like blunt conversations about the fact that we cannot progress as a country if we don't recognize that diversity is essential to who we are. What, what is the role of, of the State Department and specifically the role of the Bureau of South, Asian, um, South and Central Asia that you're a part of? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, um, so for the State Department, it's, it's incredibly, um, I don't know if it's like telling or it makes it even more important of a role I have as being part of the State Department is that um, I think quite quite few Americans understand what the State Department is because, for example, when you go to another country, like we just, you know, in Europe, for example, um, you know, in their State Department is called the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So it's very clear, like there's ministries and then the Foreign Affairs is, you know, the body of the government um, that does the external relations. Um, So for the State Department, you know, I think for us, we still have almost like a publicity um, problem that we have to continue to, you know, take on um, seriously. And I think, you know, this administration also recognizes that, that the State Department, not only is it our job to manage relationships with countries around the world, but it's also about um, something that many American citizens, when they go overseas, they have no idea, but then all of a sudden they're in a crisis and they don't know who to turn to. And lo and behold, um, you know, us diplomats at serving at the local embassy or at the local consulate overseas are there to help um, American citizens in crises. And quite honestly, you know, of course, we saw that very seriously in the last year during this pandemic um, when COVID hit last year and all of a sudden American citizens realized they needed to, to leave the country they were in, whether they were actually residents or just tourists, to come back to the U.S. to be somewhere where they could have some stable medical care, for example, um, and and who helps them in those times of crises? It's the it's us, the State Department folks who live overseas um, in various countries, working in our embassies to make sure that they can get on a plane, to make sure that they get um, an emergency passport, to make sure um, that they're taken care of. And so, you know, there's a very important part of our job, which is to make sure American citizens are taken care of overseas, but also. To make sure our 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 policy, what we what the American citizens are prioritizing, is reflected in our policy. So, for example, with this administration, you know, um, just quite honestly, building our relations back with countries everywhere is a priority, and so that's what we are doing in the State Department, trying to rebuild those relationships, and by rebuilding, focusing on climate change, focusing on human rights, and focusing on like quite honestly, the, like what we need to move forward in the 21st century. And so um, within the State Department, there are different what we call bureaus. Um, and uh, many of them are regional and some of them are like 
what we call functional, which focus on themes. Like for example, the Human Rights Bureau is, um, is called DRL. I used to work there. Um, and then I rotated out. Um, and, and I currently work in the Bureau of South and Central Asia Affairs, a regional bureau. And we focus on the region of South and Central Asia um, and our relations with the countries of the Indian subcontinent, you know, Indian, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, but also Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyz Republic, um, uh, Tajikistan, et cetera. And so, as you can imagine, that geography is kind of wide spanning. And of course, not to mention Afghanistan, Pakistan. So um, it's, it's a very big region. Um, Population-wise, you know, represents a very huge chunk of the world. Um, and as you and anyone in the world is like, you know, reading the reading the news, um, especially during the pandemic time, there are so many different issues at play to make sure that you know we um, can you know build our relations uh, with with a deep recognition of like of COVID and um, trying to advance foreign policy priorities, but while still making sure that we are keeping everyone safe. Is are, are the goals of the State uh, Department tightly aligned with the administration? Yes. So the way it works, you know, um, with every administration comes new political appointees um, at the top. Um, but of course, um, folks like me who are career, we stay on through all the administrations, right? Um, and so, of course, every administration will have its own priorities. Historically, we say that um, with administrations, you know, priorities in general, the State Department don't change that much. Um, but I would say that it's not the case for the past four mm, plus years. Um, but in general, you know, because diplomacy and and maintaining relationships with you know our different foreign counterparts is just essential business, regardless of or if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, um, for so many people who are younger people who I want to encourage to join, you know, the policy um, realm, especially um, first generation and Bangladeshi Americans, is to understand that just like any other job, um, policy is not black or white. It's there's a lot of gray, and so, uh, it, but it's also incredibly fascinating, and you can't see that firsthand unless you work within the government. And, and, you know, the State Department has offered me incredible opportunities to see um, when I was overseas, but also here in Washington, you know, how we can think creatively in, in a very challenging time uh, about uh, making sure American needs are met, but also the, the needs of these other countries are also advancing all along the way. On that note, um, so you talked about some issues that the State Department deals with. How, as a Bangladeshi, you were born here, but your family's from Bangladeshi. How do you stay objective, you know, in terms when it comes to prioritizing these issues? You know, you talked about climate change, and that's probably the number one issue for Bangladesh, but uh, and that should be the number one issue for for the world, probably. But how do you stay objective when these issues come up, and you know, you you have to, you know, you have to weigh both, you know, whether it, it's uh, important to the U.S. Uh, and Bangladesh. Yeah, I mean. It's for me. It's not. It's not hard because um, being born and raised here, 
Um, but then having lived overseas, I, I was living overseas also before I joined the State Department. I was living in, and working in Egypt. Um, and so I've been working overseas for a long time. And I think um, through that experience, you learn your own identity um, in, a, in a stark and faster pace um, because you realize like, you know, what the differences are. And like, for example, I know it's like super silly, but like when you're overseas, you're like, I, of course, of course, beyond the silliness of like missing target or something, but like you miss basic things for me as an Mm -hmm. American and, um, as a woman, uh, and being a Brown woman, like, you know, it's challenging everywhere I've served because I can quote unquote blend in, in a lot of places. But then I realize how much I miss basic freedoms that I have in the United States, like being able to just like walk down the street, um, and not worry about like freedom of movement. Um, and, and so over time I've had to reflect really deeply about my American identity, who I am, um, being Bangladeshi American means that I, I feel the, the depth of the problems that, for example, like my parents and my family members feel who many of my family members still live back in Bangladesh. Um, but I think there, it gives me a, a unique opportunity, um, to understand Hey, what what do Americans face, and what do Bangladeshis both face right now? Unfortunately, due to a pandemic, the silver lining is that we're both etern- we are both mutually worried about health and safety and security. Um, and I think it offers a unique opportunity for us to think through how we can cooperate. What is like when we talk about our bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Bangladesh? We have to think through those basic human needs, like. And what what are those basic um, things that Bangladeshis desire, that Americans desire, that we could agree upon to build that relationship even stronger? And, you know, Bangladesh just celebrated its 50th anniversary. um, And soon we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of of the relationship between the United States and Bangladesh. Um, And it's a challenging time. Um, But I think these challenges should um, actually uh, allow us more opportunity to understand you know, what can we build even stronger? And climate change is essential. I mean, this is an essential um, theme that this administration is focused on, um, not only because of our the appointment of, um, you know, presidential special envoy John Kerry, but also, um, you know, for example, this upcoming week, uh, you know, the White House is is hosting the first ever climate summit. And so I think these themes are really important. Um, and for me, I, I actually find myself Taking, taking this lens of, oh, I have this duality of being um, a South Asian American that actually gives me more of an understanding of how to bridge, bridge the policy you know, realms and, and viewpoints to see how can we actually coordinate better and build a stronger relationship. Do you go back to the often? Uh, so yeah, the funny story is that um, I used to go a lot when I was a child. Um, oh, yeah. My mom is one of 12 uh, and my father is one of seven and they have most of their families still back in Bangladesh. Oh, wow. So, what you know, my, so my mother's family is from Kushtia and my father's family is from uh, a little uh, village right outside of Dhaka. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as with, I guess, a lot of folks now, most of my kalas and mamas, um, uh, are in, you know, Dhaka proper now. Um, and I have not been back in 14 years. I did my undergraduate thesis 
um, uh, on Bangladesh uh, on women's rights issues. And I had, I did some uh, research there for my thesis back, back in 2007. Um, But the irony or the interesting tidbit is actually my next assignment, diplomatic assignment is Dhaka. So I, I am planning to head there inshallah if COVID uh, allows uh, next month. So you'll live there with your family? Uh, I will be there with my husband and kids. Yes, we will be oh, there wow. for uh, our next diplomatic assignment. How long do they typically last? They'll typically last two to three years. So I oh, expect wow. to be there for, for three years. Yes. How's your husband? You mentioned he's not Bengali. How's he? Uh, is he looking forward to that? Oh, yeah. He's very much looking forward to it. Actually, I think he was even more gung-ho about <laughs> us getting this assignment. My husband um, was in the private sector for most the earlier chunk of my career. And now he actually also joined the, um, the diplomatic service. So he's also going to be joining us. Uh, we'll be working in different sections of the embassy. Um, he's very... Ex- it's, it's, we, we're both very excited. I mean, um, because, you know, for us, the duality of having um, our kids... Uh, be Bangladeshi, you know, now second generation American, and my husband is uh, African American. We we feel very strongly about raising our children um, in both cultures. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually a great opportunity. Our kids are both under five, and so That's they awesome. get an opportunity to actually be immersed um, in the culture. And my hope is for them to learn Bangla better than I did when I was yeah. a kid. Um, and, and actually, you know, and be able to be around their family, um, because we don't ever get a chance, you know, to, they've never met so many, um, you know, uh, extended family members, you know, in their entire lives. That's the beauty. That's the best part of Bangladesh, right? It's like, yeah, like wow, you have so many big, so such a big family. And I'm assuming you grew up, you know, you mentioned in New York, probably you didn't have a large family here and same, and same no, here. You really no, didn't have anyone. No. Going, going yeah. back, you like come across so many people like, wow, I wish I had this growing up. No, absolutely. And, it, and, you know, I feel it even more so now as a mother and my mother is actually with us and um, is basically like, you know, we say she's like the best Nanu in the world um, and is like, you know, half raising my kids right now with me because of COVID uh, and like not being able to handle like childcare. Um, and we're so blessed to have her around and um, you know, uh, the, I told my toddler that we're go moving, you know, we're trying to prepare him to that we're moving to a new place. Um, and we said, this is, we're going to the, the, the next place is where Nanu and Nana are from. And that's where our family is. And so he's like overjoyed. Um, mm. and, and, and I want to give that connection to him because when I was growing up, you know, you know, my Nanu and Nana and my Dadu were, you know, in, in Bangladesh and I saw them only every few years. And, how much of a relationship can you really develop with your grandparents yeah. when when they're thousands of miles away and then they passed away when I was young? And so I really never had that connection. And I actually think that's one of the great things about the U.S. Like here in America, um, so many families actually live like within like, you know, 10 to 20 miles of like the grandparents. And mm-hmm. growing up, I didn't quite understand it, but I felt like I was a little bit left out. And I don't know you know, uh, if you ever saw the commercials, like maybe I'm dating myself, but like back in the day, pre Hulu and Netflix, when we watched TV and like had to watch commercials, <laughs> there were all these these commercials of, um, you know, like the grandparents like sing- sitting at home with the Toll House cookies, mm-hmm. um, and I would just like kind of look in jealousy and just be like, oh man, I don't know what that's like. 
um, where you could just like go around the corner to your grandparents and just like hang out with them. And my kids are getting that, but also are going to get even more by meeting like the rest of our family. Um, and I and I just feel like it's it's such a, such a blessing to be able to offer that opportunity to yeah. them. So what what are some of the not so glamorous parts of the job? Oh yeah, so many not so glamorous job parts. And we say you know in the uh, uh, for so many. Um, perspective, uh, you know, students I meet, especially in DC who are all like, you know, Georgetown, George Washington students who are like all want to join the foreign service. Um, uh, I tell them, Hey, it's a great job, but it's also a lifestyle. So you don't just sign up. Like, of course, it's an incredible honor to serve our country, but it's not without its, um, you know, pains, uh, uprooting and moving every few years is very challenging. Um, and I will, uh, learn it in a very new way now that I have kids um, who, like my son, you know, he was born in the U.S., but then we moved to Ghana when he was a baby. He's been in the U.S. He's, you know, so he's seen more countries than like most adults have, and he's not even four. Um, but, you know, soon we're moving him and he has no idea that he's leaving all of his friends. Um, and so that's, that's challenging for children. And it's, and it's, and it, it's fine, but like maybe the the first or second time, but then after a while it gets stale, right? Um, and I mean, thankfully we have technology and like iPads and people can FaceTime, but it doesn't, um, you know, take away from like stability that they would normally have. But I do say that with the hard times and, and for example, even right now, like in a, COVID has really exacerbated some of the the difficult parts of this career. Like, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, how, how do I get my how do I get my kid to keep a mask on for thirty hours in a plane? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I get him to like, you know? And I already feel terrible here in the U.S. having to yell at him in the playground to put a mask on all the time, which is, you know, of course within its own challenges. But as you can imagine, uh, Bangladesh right now is, you know, going through a really tough um, COVID surge. Um, and it's very challenging for me to think through, like, how do my children make new friends? Um, under lockdown and not being able to interact with people. And so while America right now has, um, you know, has its own fair share of COVID issues, we still are a very large country. And depending on where you are, like you can create, even in these really tough times, you can create your own little, you know, bubble of something at least. Um, We've been lucky to, and, and thankful to have access to the vaccines I mean, millions of people around the world, and of course in Bangladesh, are are not getting that access. Um, how do we how do we think about living overseas when you know herd immunity and variants are still like you know I don't even know. We I thought you know a year ago I thought we would have figured this out by now, and clearly this is going to be a lot more of a challenge that I think will affect this entire generation um, more than I think anyone ever thought, and so. That makes this career those those kinds of things will make it harder. Um, and you know, living in places like Dhaka, the we love Dhaka, but the air pollution has gotten really bad. Um, and what does that effect have on our kids? And um, but honestly, we would still take that again and again because it gives our not only um, my husband and I a great um, you know jobs where we look forward to engaging and and being part of you know important policymaking, but also our children get. A unique opportunity to to be in different countries and meet other people and have more um, of an international lens early on, so that when they grow up, they'll recognize that you know they are one 
person in a big world where they have a lot to contribute. You mentioned some of those schools earlier in uh, Georgetown and uh, George Washington, those yeah, I, I don't know what the category of those schools are, but they sort of like, I'll call them anchor schools. So kind of the schools kind of get you ready for work, uh, work in government. Uh, I, we have a lot of, um, you know, our audience on, on the Boney podcast and on, on our social media in New York. So a lot of these New York centered schools like Baruch NYU, I don't think those are focused on government. So if someone wants to enter government um, work or policies, what, what sort of suggestions would you have if they're not going to one of those top you know, schools where, um, you know, the government recruits from? I love that question. Thank you for asking it. And I think it's important, like, from actually to be very, very upfront that you don't have to be from a quote-unquote theater school to to join government. Um, actually, it's quite the opposite. We need more people from Baruch, from NYU, from CUNY, from every level and depth of universities and backgrounds and experiences to join government and especially to you know the fellow the to the to the folks listening to the bony podcast if you're you know desi or south asian or first generation whatever your experiences are so important and valuable um and actually i think there's a lot more out there now on the internet that people can search out for to just even see seek out you know a little bit of a taste of what you know Policymaking or government or foreign policy specifically type of job would look like. Um, and, you know, maybe it's my way of trying to find silver linings in a pandemic. But this, the, another silver lining of this pandemic is that, you know, so much more can people realize now can be done virtually. Um, for example, the State Department has, we have a, um, what we call a virtual service foreign service, VSFS. It's an internship. You can be a virtual intern for the State Department. You don't need to come to Washington. If that's not, you know, your cup of tea or not something that's affordable for you. So I encourage folks to look that up. And then just writ large, if you do have the desire, um, I always encourage um, students to think about an internship in Washington um, because it is a different place. I love New York. I am from New York. I still think it's one of the best cities on earth. Um, But DC is its own experience. And if you really want to get a sense of like, oh, maybe I think I'm in... And I was there. I mean, I was I was there when I was going to grad school in D.C., you know, a long time ago now. Um, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I was like, maybe law, maybe policy, like maybe NGO work. I mean, a lot of things that didn't pay the bills that really were like making my parents mad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you kind of have to do a little bit of everything to understand if this is what you want to do, you know? And so like, I didn't know if I wanted to do policy. So I did a, a, a an internship um, for an NGO that was focused on the Hill. Um, that was okay. But I was like, this is like, they would be working me to the bone and I would be getting paid peanuts. Like this is not my cup of tea. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I actually didn't, I, the imposter syndrome for me had went so far back that I didn't even think about applying for an internship at the state department because I was like, of course they wouldn't accept me. Like, why would they want someone like me? And so I am here to say they want someone like you. They need more people like whoever is listening to this podcast. Um, and, 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 and fill out an application. The only thing with state department internships is that you just need to be a little bit ahead of the game. So for example, if you want to do it, you would apply now for next year because security gotcha. clearances, security clearances take time. Right. And yes, they're annoying and they can take time, 
But quite honestly, once you do one security clearance application, you really are like, it's like you got to get your, you got to get your feet a little wet to understand the process, um, demystify it, get a sense of what it's like. And then you'll find yourself, you know, being able to apply for a lot more opportunities because you at least went that, you, you got that experience of applying for a security clearance and applying for an internship in government. Uh, it is its own beast, but once you can seek it out, it's very easy to Google. You can find out those opportunities. And honestly, anyone who's listening to this can look me up on LinkedIn and reach out and say that they're interested to learn more because we need more, um, we need more um, folks that look like me and you to be in government. Um, you know, as you and I both know, you know how many Bangladeshi Americans there are. And yet they're not represented to that commensurate level in government. Meanwhile, um, you know, in the rest of the Desi community, I would say, you know, Indian Americans, of course, uh, huge numbers, especially in this current administration, which makes me so proud. Um, and definitely a lot of Pakistani Americans too. But I, a part of me wonders, you know, what's keeping the Bangladeshi Americans from really, you know, joining government? And I don't think it's a lack of interest. Um, I think there is a huge interest. Uh, it's just a matter of access and and having these kinds of conversations to really demystify that you know these these opportunities are actually really out there and available. Do you think part of it is this negative perception of of uh, politics that 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 exists in Bangladesh? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, my mother has it. It's hilarious. My my yeah. uh, uh, my abba was you know a freedom fighter. For Bangladesh um, and left Bangladesh shortly after you know Bangladesh was born um, to come here to, to to pursue school, but he was always like in the politics. I grew up immersed in it. Like my mm-hmm. my early childhood memories were like watching like you know nightly news with my father, and he would like break down like the Iraq War for me. You oh, know, wow. like who who wants to have those stories as like a seven year old? Um, you know, like Abba would be working a lot, so we would barely see him. And so my parents, when we were living in New York City, my um, my parents had a corner store in the Upper East Side. And so they were just oh, always wow. there working. And so I, you know, my brother basically kind of self kind of helped raise me. Um, but Abba's way of connecting with us um, on the weekends was Abba would sit down in his lungi on Sunday morning and take out the Sunday times. Um, and he would just like be looking over at me and being like, okay, there's like something going on in Mali. Where is Mali? And I would be like, I don't know. And he would be like, how do you not know? What do they teach you in school? And I'm like, I'm seven. Like what? How do I know where Mali is? Is he so, still around? Yeah. Yeah. My father is like, reti- my, both my parents are retired and I'm so thankful. Like, you know, for everything they've done for, to be able to have, you know, my brother and I be so successful. But it's hilarious because my father is so into politics and my mother is like the opposite. So she's like, so she hates politics, doesn't want to hear it. And is tired of hearing my father talk about it every day. <laughs> um, and so it's, so she thought I was joining that. She's like, oh, it's your father, yeah, your, your father's influence. Right. Yeah. But I say that I share that story to say like, I get it. Um, but being in government is not being in politics. Yeah. And that's not to say, you know, hey, being in politics also actually incredibly challenging. I've thought about it many times and I don't have the appetite for it. Um, you need to have a really strong stomach to, to do politics, yeah. especially in the United States, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I, but I think it's really important to explain that, like, for example, it, you know, and I think, you know, in this, in this generation, we've seen a lot more politicians in the U.S. who've 
broken it down, like AOC just doing Instagrams and Instagram lives, and like just talking about, you know, what she does as a congresswoman. Um, it, we need to have, you know, and that's why this kind of conversation, I mean, I'm not AOC level, but like to say, we need to have these just very basic conversations about what it means to be in policy. Um, and then you start to realize, a lot of people start to realize, wait, I would, I would like a job where I could go overseas um, and represent my country and talk about American policy to Bangladeshi students and talk to them about why we need America and the and Bangladesh Bangladesh like students in both countries to coordinate together and talk about COVID and technology and like 21st century innovation. That actually sounds really cool, right? So like yeah. I love having jo- a job that I where I can do that and create those connections and and where oh like oh that this university in, in Bangladesh wants to learn more about like you know science and innovation. Who how can we create a linkage with like some great universities in the United States where they can talk to each other as professors and like, and think through like, oh, well, how can we do this and that in in COVID times? So like, these are actually things that give me so much joy. Um, And I know so many other people probably would like to do things like that, but they just don't know that that's a job in policy. Mm. Yeah. One um, thing that I hear from my friends that uh, are in um, other industries like finance and um, you know, medicine is that, you know, you know, for, and it speaks to what you were saying earlier, was we're probably a little bit behind Indians and Pakistanis in terms of being active in, uh, in government is, I think a lot of us have this immediate need to make money right out of college. So I wanted to, so my question to you is, is, so there's a, mis, there's a, tell me, is it a misconception that sort of government jobs um, are underpaid? Um, yes and no. And I totally get it my mother is still like, I'm a, and I get it. Like we grew up, you know, just trying to get food on the table. Like yeah. that was literally our entire upbringing to the point where even now, um, I earn a decent enough salary. Um, and my husband and I both do, and we don't have to worry about, you know, money mm-hmm. most, most days. And so, but I don't know how not to be cheap. Like yeah. my husband was like, you make a decent enough salary. The kids are okay. Like, why would you not just buy a new pair of shoes? And I'm like, what? I don't, Same here. I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't, I just, I don't know how to do that. And so I had to unlearn some of that. Right. And I think to be very frank, of course, in the beginning, when you join government, it's not six figures. It just can't be because of the standardized government pay scale. Yes. Um, can you get there? Absolutely. You absolutely can get there. And depending on what type of jobs you do, especially if you join, um, you know, beyond state department, like let's say you want to join DOD, um, and, and work on tech. Actually, um, one of my mamas, I didn't realize, like he just like looked for a job in DOD and he had come from private sector and he's like, get, he's, he's getting paid way more than me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in, in the, in the DOD tech world. And so I really think that um, there, there are lots of ways to get paid a good salary. And quite frankly, it's not just like you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or a banker to get, you know, a decent salary and, and feel like you now don't have to worry about, you know, quote unquote, putting food on the table. Um, and I, and I, I will say, it's really funny. My mom was joking now cause she's been the one um, has been pushing me my entire life to be a doctor. Um, and I, you know, I think even at like, 
you know, five years into being a diplomat, she was still like, are you sure you want to keep doing this job? Um, even though I clearly was like, you know, I had a, a solid, like, you know, solid career, solid salary, solid everything. And now COVID hit and she's like, oh yeah, no, I would not have wanted you to become a doctor. And I was like, that's mm-hmm. just hilarious and ironic. But I just, the, you know, it's a story, but to say that um, every career and job is hard. Uh, um, and I, I would say in the US to be a white collar professional, like I don't know of a single white collar job where you get paid a six figure salary and you're not working for it. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think that in government, I will say I have a good salary. I I work hard, but I don't like. I don't feel like I'm working insane hours all yeah. the time. And I think that there there are definitely lulls and there are definitely moments like right now, for example, where we're super busy. But um, I'm not like expected to work until 10 p.m. every day, you know. And I think that version of like how much of a work life balance, how much of a like for me, like a, a little a, a version of a formula is like how much of a work life balance can I get from this job? How much do I like what I do, and then how much does it actually you know pay the bills? And you kind of have to toggle between and see how much of a balance you can get. But I think those are the very three. Those are for me the three main elements to to any good job that you want to actually be in. Well, I was really excited to hear uh, someone uh, as senior as you in the State Department. Um, obviously, we'll be following you. I'd love for you to come back later on and, and, and talk about what, what are other things you have going on. Yeah, no, I would love to. It's been such a pleasure. The red and green I beat is always in my heart. I, I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I gotta be honest with diamonds and pearls. Yeah, yeah, Bengali's in New York, all over the world, uh, it's the Boney Show, uh, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live, from the slang we spit, to the gangs we with, it doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh, I say, hey, come on, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live.